Hello and welcome to a very special edition of the At The Flicks podcast. Special because it's the first time we've chatted face-to-face with a guest since the dreaded C-word. Don't worry, Graham, I meant COVID. (laughs) All joking aside, it is a real pleasure for Graham and I to be sitting here with Simon Taylor, the man who has thrived in that most frightening of all scenarios, live TV. Hello, Simon. How are you? And welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jeff. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, no, a pleasure uh, to be here. No, it's, it's great. And I'm looking forward to this chat. <laughs> I'm looking forward to what's going to come out. You and me both. Yeah. A, a trip down memory lane for yeah. me. <laughs> Usually it's Graham editing out my off-colour remarks. So uh, it's good that he's got two lots this time. Off-colour? There's no colour in the middle. <laughs> now, before we start, I'd like to give a big shout out for one of my favourite places in Stroud. And I know yours too, the Stroud Wine Company. Mm-hmm. Ah, indeed. Yeah. A wonderful, wonderful institution. <laughs> and if you live local and haven't visited their shop, I would urge you to check it out and look on their website for their special upcoming events. Their website is stroudwine, all one word, dot com, and a link to the site will be in our show notes. Now, why do I mention this now? Well, Simon was co-host at my favourite event that they've hosted so far, the Battle of the Bottles. <laughs> Would you like to say a few words about that event? Because you, you introduced yeah. me to something there that was just amazing. Yeah, it's an idea that we'd had for quite a while. As we do in Strad Wine, we're constantly uh, arguing in a friendly way uh, about <laughs> what wines are better. Is it this? Is it that? Is this Cabernet Sauvignon better than that one? So we thought in the end, you know what would be fun is let's get some invited guests to try. So it was myself uh, and Laura, uh, co-owner of uh, Stroud Wine. Uh, We both presented our favourite bottles of wine to our guests. A number of discerning palates. Uh, And uh, (laughs) yeah, and it it went to the vote. Sadly, the majority vote I lost uh, on most of the wines. But yeah, no, it's just a fun way of giving a wine tasting and allowing people to judge wines on merit. So yeah, we really enjoyed it. Yeah, we'll definitely do that one again. Well, we'll we'll definitely be there. Yeah. Yeah. And as for Graham, well, you know, I like to talk about wine. Obviously, he'll drink it all day. I'll drink it all day. A member of the Cheltenham Fine Wine Club. Yes. Ah, fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful. So, so okay. Well, I'd like to talk about wine. Let's move on to the world of entertainment. That's all. That's what our listeners listen to this podcast for. Not not us rambling on about wine. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So. I mean, that's an incredibly stressful job, live TV. What on earth persuaded you to go into it in the first place? Yeah, it really is. I have to say, with live television, it is the buzz. I mean, it is the biggest high uh, you could possibly get. And the great thing about being live is, you know, you don't stop, you don't restart. Once that show starts, you're off. And whether it's an hour or two hours, it literally feels like five minutes. And you're often flying by the seat of your pants as a viewer you're looking at these shows they often look very slick very calm and well presented but i can assure you uh, pretty much each and every live show even if it's a well-oiled machine that's on every week there is utter chaos going on behind the scenes and that's that's part of the fun so it is definitely the buzz of making live television and especially if you've got an audience there as well and if they're enjoying it that's also really really satisfying you know, from you know the beginning of an idea to seeing it being presented on TV, and then an audience enjoying that is that's it's just a buzz. It really is. So that first show that you were involved with, mm. that must have been a huge eye opener to you, then. Yeah. So the first live TV that I did uh, was The Big Breakfast, obviously by Channel Four, Planet Twenty Four Productions. So I joined them uh, as a tape librarian. Uh, there you go. This is when everything was still on tape. Tape, yeah, a what? tape librarian. Yeah, back in the sort of mid to late nineties, ninety six, ninety seven. I knew of Planet Twenty Four because they produced the Word uh, TV show. That was a great show. Yeah, which mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, and that was absolutely that hit at the time. You know, when I was a student in my early twenties, uh, nineteen ninety ninety one. I think it ran through to about 94. Seeing that kind of youth TV, uh, which back then, it still felt fresh. You know, I was very much aware of who Planet 24 were. By, you know, the, the sort of late 90s, I got the opportunity to join the company. 
So Channel 4, as I understand it, got a unique financing model, whereas they don't have production companies themselves. So Planet 24 had a working relationship with them. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Channel 4 don't make anything. It is all independent companies they work with, unlike the BBC model, where they will make things in-house, as it were, uh, as well as use production companies if you're listening to this nadine doris that's how it works <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely right not to get on my soapbox but the idea of selling off channel four is is absolutely pointless uh you know working with planet 24 and being in that environment i then became a researcher so the structure was researcher assistant producer and then producer, and then ultimately series producer. Okay, so so a researcher. Mm. So you got a guest coming on, I assume, and you would research. Absolutely, yeah. So the way the Big Breakfast worked is it was on five days a week, Monday to Friday. Each day would have a core team. Uh, so you'd have maybe four people. So you'd have a producer, an AP, a couple of researchers, and then everyone had use of runners. So runners were, fetch me a tea or coffee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you photocopy this? So yes, researchers were, we've got this guest coming on today. Let's write a biography of them. We want to know who they are, what questions we're going to write for them, and what we're going to do for them. Yeah. And then, you know, with Big Breakfast, is there any other business that that we can have fun with them? It was, you know, the Big Breakfast, as some of your listeners hopefully will remember, it was quite a fun morning show. So we always liked a little bit of extra value. But, of course, anybody listening to this now would think, oh, well, that's easy. You just go to the internet and get all the details. But you didn't have that luxury. Goodness me, no, we did not. When I started, oh, God, I sound so old now. It's a shocker. I do remember there there was one computer that had access to the internet that we would then have to book time uh, to research. So, yeah, no, we did not use the internet. No, this was phone bashing. You know, this was phoning up agents, send us biogs, books, magazines, you know, finding those articles. You know, there were companies that we used that... Any story about any celebrity was archived. So you could phone up and say, right, I need a copy of this, 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 and it would be faxed through to you. I was going to say, weren't they called clippings companies? Yeah, there were clippings companies. Gosh, yeah, there was a couple that we used that would, you know, provide us with information and, you know, background uh, on, you know, certain people. The idea today that, uh, yeah, all you've got to do is just, you know, quick Google and there it is. And towards the end of my career, I could see it with my researchers. You know, we've got this information, la, 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 and I think this is all rubbish. You've just taken this off Wikipedia, which yeah. is littered with mistakes. Yeah. You know, so you do have to be really careful with that. But, um, but yeah, you would construct an item uh, around you know, a guest, you know, when we say item, you know, as well as the interview, any other business that we could do with them, uh, then the producer would approve that. And then the producer would go and have a meeting with the series producer and say, yes, that's good. You know, how's your show coming together? It was a lot of effort. Yeah. You know, it was a week's worth of effort to really make a two hour live TV show, certainly. So how long did you have to go and research somebody? So you've got, I don't know, a Hollywood A-lister coming on. Uh, it, it would honestly depend. Uh, sometimes you would have a guest in place if you were lucky. If it was a big Hollywood guest, if we, we had Tom Hanks on the show, and so we would know that was probably a few weeks in advance. Um, but that's that's a luxury. Yeah. You know, Sometimes you would have a guest who would pull out literally the night before. So you would then be trying to phone agents who that you knew to say, look, have you got anyone who's doing the circuit at the moment? And by the circuit, we mean, yeah. is there yeah. anyone out there who's got something to plug who can literally be at the Big Breakfast studio in four hours' time? Sometimes you'd be scrabbling. You'd be writing scripts as the show was going out. So, as I said, when it's seat the pants, it really was sometimes wow. seat your pants. Did you have to do that often? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes whole shows would fall apart. Oh, um, um, the night before and you would literally have no show it'd be like somebody pulled a thread and the whole thing falls apart the boy band that you'd booked suddenly you know one of them's ill they wouldn't turn up and then hey you know that guy who was going to do that cookery item well he can't make it because he's stuck in Manchester suddenly you, you had 20 minute 40 minute gaps in a show that you literally had to fill so yeah it, it was tricky Yeah, and when you did a show each team Let's say if you were doing Thursday's show, uh, you would turn up, uh, you'd be at your desk Wednesday morning at around about 9am, 
and then you would go home. Uh, the next time you'd go home was Thursday morning uh, about 10 a.m. So you would work pretty much 24 hours straight to get that show ready for that day. It was a tough environment, but then when we did it, we were all in our 20s. We were all young guns. It just felt normal. So you know? did you ever have a show where the guest just didn't turn up? Yeah, totally. Absolutely. Uh, how, so, how do you deal with that? <laughs> well, so the era that I did the big breakfast was Johnny Vaughan, Denise Van Outen. Yeah. And those guys were absolute pros. Yes. Um, so if an item didn't quite work, uh, and they, they could tell instantly if we'd lost something, an item or, you know, if something wasn't working out, they could make it work. You know, you could give Johnny Vaughan a pencil and he'd riff on that for 10 minutes and it would be fun telly. So, yeah, sometimes, you know, those guys, bless them, they were really hung out to dry, but they did it. You know, they coped. They'd suddenly start joking around with the crew or, you know, what really often saved us is it was a big open plan production office just out by Canary Wharf. The place would be full of stuff. So companies would send us toys, games, you know, just any, you know, toy robots, anything, just the weirdest stuff, because they would all hope that we'd plug it on the show. So if we did lose an item, it's like, right, well, we've got this robot dog that can do cartwheels. So you'd give that to Johnny Vaughan and he'd play with that for five minutes just to plug that gap that we'd, you know, and you wouldn't notice. You'd just think, oh, well, that's part of the zany character of The Big Breakfast. You had hosts. I mean, that didn't happen all the time. No. You know, mostly it was a properly structured show. And sometimes you'd plan items that you'd spent weeks on, but because an interview with a guest was going really well, it would overrun and you'd drop stuff as well. So it worked the other way. You'd put a lot of effort into things uh, for that show that would literally fall by the wayside at the last minute because something else was overrunning and you got to run to time. That's the other thing with live TV. There's a start point, but there's also an end point. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, it was really intense. But goodness me, every other job I've done since then, and I've worked very hard on other jobs, doesn't compare to the, the, uh, the craziness of, uh, of that kind of show. So when you were a researcher, mm. is there one piece that when you were researching you thought, I'm so pleased with this, nobody would ever have found this out without me? I'll tell you what, actually, there was one... Yeah, this was great. We were interviewing... So this ties in with movies, so oh, let's talk good. movies. So, of course, you know, every movie you know coming yeah, out yeah. you know um would be offered you know do you want to uh, sort of interview you know the stars uh, and we did a lot at the dorchester hotel it seemed to be that's where a lot of the movie studios would do their junkets junkets obviously yeah. it's where you know uh, the star is put in a room and then they are interviewed by 50 news outlets all yeah. asking the same the question, question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that was what was good about the big breakfast is we would turn up and yes we're asking tell us about your movie but we would also turn up and go what's your favorite dog do you like going to the seaside and if so do you sit on a deck chair how, how what's the fastest you've unopened it you know just rubbish like this yeah. what we'd also try and do is play maybe a little game with them while they were there and i remember there was a film called chocolat yeah. uh with juliette binoche and johnny Depp. and johnny Depp. yeah now oh you had me at juliette binoche. yeah so i'd read <laughs> Uh, and it wasn't in the official notes, but I can't remember where. But I'd read that she had spent several months with the most famous chocolatier in Europe, you know, to research for this role. And she became his student. Oh, wow. uh, and she said that, you know, she understood, you know, she, she treated chocolate like we would treat a wine tasting, you know. Yeah. So I thought, oh, well, that's quite interesting. So I thought, well, I'll tell you what. And again, you know, you're flying by the seat of your pants and you know, honestly the ball's on us for even asking it. So when we got there, I said to her, look, you know, I, I read this, is that true? And she was like, yeah. I said, okay, well, I've got four bars of chocolate here. How would you feel about blind tasting these chocolates? <laughs> and you telling me what's like your bog standards, you know, rubbish everyday chocolate bar and what's like the high-end handmade stuff and she was like yeah let's do it so yeah she was she was bang up for that so so i so we're in her suite so she decides she doesn't want to do it in the chair so she lays on her bed with a blindfold so i'm laying next to juliette bernard 
and I'm like and I'm like feeding her oh. bits of chocolate so she's like laying there sort of mm, I'm, uh, and you know what fair play to her she nailed what four out of the five you know you know she she said no that's a uh, mass-produced chocolate no that's this uh, there was only one that she got wrong and she and she loved it and she loved it because she'd been sat in a room tell us about your film yeah. What's your what's, what's your motivation for this? What was working with Johnny Depp like? And then suddenly, you know, the big breakfast rocks up. Here, eat some chocolate. Is it good? Or <laughs> and she was just like, yeah, all over that. You know, she was totally all over it. You know, at the end, she's like, oh, thank you. Oh, that, that's the best interview I've done. There is a flip side to that. Other, you know, interviews that we've tried to have games with. There are A-list celebrities... Uh, shall I name names? Yeah, Kevin Costner was not a fun person. Uh, he he was not. <laughs> I can't bless it. I can't even remember what he, we were asking him to do. But yeah, I mean, the look that he gave us was uh, quite astonishing. Yeah. yeah, Jennifer Aniston. There's another one. Bless her. She did not want to play ball. I remember when um, the new Star Wars films oh, right. were coming. The Phantom Menace. Yeah. Yes, they'd flown in George Lucas, Rick McCallum, the producer. Uh, a couple of the stars as well. Again, they bless them. George Lucas, he'd been sat in a room all day. You know, tell us about... Blah, 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 blah. And we turn up, we had this massive A1 board that said Star Wars Family Tree on it. And we were like, George, right, we want you to tell us who's related to who and how does who know who? And how does how did Han Solo know? Blah, blah, blah. And he absolutely loved it. He, really, he, was, he was like, Rick, Rick, McCallum, the producer, come in, you've got to help me with this. You've got to help me with it. <laughs> Wonderful. Yeah, uh, you know, so we were quite cheeky, um, but we got, you know, we got good interviews. Yeah, no, it's fun, fun. Brilliant. So after researching, mm. that was your next step then, was it? Sort of. Yeah, so after research, uh, you become an assistant producer, you know, which is, you know, you've got a little bit more, you know, you can bring ideas to the table. You would go out and shoot this stuff as an assistant producer, yeah. you know, so you'd organise those, you'd set them up, you'd book your crew. And and we did go out with a crew, you know, we, we took sound and cameramen, proper professional crew, you know, I mean, everything today's filmed on phones isn't it and then you would come back uh, there would be edit suites in the building as well so rather than go out to facilities houses we had our own edit suites uh, with dedicated editors so you know we would package you know what we'd done so you you, you, there was more to do uh, as an assistant producer and then obviously ultimately producer you are you know responsible for that show how does the show fit together what item goes where and it sounds like your crew all integrated really well. We were all young guns and we all kind of like chipped in. We all did it. You know, we all did everything that was required of us and more. You know, we'd dress up in stupid costumes. <laughs> we'd be people needed whatever. You know, if we were available to help, yeah, we'd do it. What are your favourite moments from that time? Just the camaraderie. And, just, and I suppose it's looking back and thinking, I cannot believe that we're doing this. We were in a bubble. I suppose, uh, young people making TV for young people. It was the travel. It was who you got to meet, the stories you'd come back with, you know, the stories you'd hear, you know, about people. There was a desk called Forward Planning, uh, which I I did a stint on as well. And this would be trying to find interesting people. that. So you'd go through all the papers and all the magazines. And if you'd read an article about anyone who was just interesting, you'd then try and get hold of them, you know, to get them on the show. So it's just meeting people and hearing their stories and just having fun. We had a lot of fun. It was hard, hard, hard work. But that's what you were used to. You were just used to that kind of work. But yeah, it it was just so varied and so crazy. You'd see and meet people that you just wouldn't and do things. You know, you're walking out on stage at Wembley Stadium, you know, with a crowd full of people, you know, with a camera, just because you want to get shots from the stage, doing things like that. You know, it's just pretty crazy, yeah. I was going to say what your typical day would be like, but there isn't a typical day. No, there's no typical day. These are highlights, you know, on the whole, mostly, as I said, big open plan office. You'd be sat there and, you know, you'd be tapping away, starting the script. Yeah, day to day, you know, it it would be a normal, normal normalish day, but it would be punctuated with, okay, well, we're going up to Scotland to film this guy who can eat 50 sausages in 30 seconds, just all sorts. Who are your favourite guests you interacted with? The rule of thumb, and this is, I believe, still to be true, the bigger the star, the nicer they are. Um, So, you know, you would have your Tom Hanks, 
who, who would just be nice as pie. Samuel L. Jackson, he liked his golf, so we yeah. set up a crazy golf course in the back garden <laughs> and he got really into it he was yeah. really yeah he was going for that yeah so we played that we had uh, that's an item that overran you know um, <laughs> the rock actually he was a, he was a lovely guy i think one of his early really early movies he just i think he might have even still been wrestling but he was making that transition the mummy returns i think it's probably yeah like i can't that, remember no. what it was yeah it might have been actually yeah you know he was just sweet as pie you know a really really nice chap too too many to remember, yeah. There, there's no one I would say, you know. Um, but most people were good, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, you know, your your boy bands or your your soap stars who will remain nameless were <laughs> often the the very worst people to deal with. You know, they're they're the ones that really had egos, but and no long forgotten today. Absolutely, and rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> so, how long did you work on the Big Breakfast for? Uh, so I worked there until about 2001 or two. I left before the end. After Johnny left, I kind of went with him. He set up his own production company, so I went to work for them. But yeah, we made Johnny Vaughan tonight. It was for the BBC because we we launched BBC Three. Uh, okay. Yeah. So BBC when they got their first digital channel, it was called BBC Choice. And then they rebranded to BBC Three, so they wanted a nice sort of rebrand. So they got Johnny Vaughan and the Johnny Vaughan Tonight Show to kind of do the live portion. Welcome to BBC Three, la 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 la. These are the programmes coming up tonight, so we did that. But yeah, the, the BBC wanted a kind of late night Jay Leno American oh, style yeah. interview show. Um, so we did a couple of seasons uh, of that. It was a live show. I was the live outside broadcast producer, so that was that was quite fun. So I would travel around quite a bit. And what was the brief on that? Was it celebrities? Or was yeah, it celebrities, but also topical as well. You know, it was mostly celebrity chat. Him behind a desk with a microphone similar to what, what's in front of us now, you know, and a sofa next to him, you know, and whoever the celebrities of the day, like Jonathan Ross does now. Um, what was your role on that? Outside uh, broadcast uh, producer. So each episode, we would do a little throwaway item. And he's like, right, let's go over to whatever. It's disco night up in Stockport. For whatever reason, you know, yeah. uh, uh, we, we just barrel around all over the country. And some of the strangest ones you've done on that? And somebody wrote in going, I don't believe your show is live. And yeah. Johnny Vaughan really took exception to that. <laughs> <clears throat> so... He decided that we would then base the outside broadcast in Parliament Square and he would cut to me uh, because, you know, there was no outside broadcast host. So every episode he would cut to me, Simon, are you there? Yes, hello, Johnny. Can you tell us the time? Uh, well, the time, Johnny, is da-da-da. And then we'd pan up to Big Ben. <laughs> yeah. Just say, yeah, we're, we're totally live, Johnny. Uh, and that was it. <laughs> you know, uh, that was it. And then, uh, and then we'd relocate. There was a pub that all the politicians used to go to, which the name I forget. And the landlord was really, uh, he was really up for this. So we'd then move into that pub. We would cut to the landlord, and Johnny Vaughan would be like, "Right, you know what, what's uh, what, what's the word on the street? What's going on in uh, in Westminster this week?" And the landlord would be like, "Well, I had such and such in here. <laughs> uh, yeah, let me tell you, he had quite a few drinks that night. And of course, Johnny Vaughan loved that. Oh, hey, whoa! What's he drink? What's he drinking? What's he drinking? Is he GNT man? Or is he pints? What is he like? What is he? <laughs> yeah. So we did that for quite a while. <laughs> yeah. I once went to Amsterdam to prep a live outside broadcast some guy had opened a toothbrush museum <laughs> so we're like well we've got to talk to this guy <laughs> yeah uh so i went out to amsterdam and we used a local crew <laughs> at least this the, the sound man and uh, caravan turned up and, and these guys film court proceedings in the hague Okay, so suddenly I rock up and we're, we're like, okay, we're going to film this guy. He works at a toothbrush museum. They loved it because suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, we can do this angle here and then we can, and I can do a whip pan round to him and la, 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 la. So they were really into it because, bless them, all they do is kind of stand there in a courtroom, you know, with a locked off shot all day long. And suddenly this British guy turns up, hey, yeah. Yeah, and, and do you know what? We never used it. We ran out of time. Oh, no. Yeah, we never used it. So I'm stood there and I, and I could hear, obviously, the studio. Yeah, you know, and the director in the gallery, and I'm looking at my watch. I'm thinking, okay, well, we we're going to come to us so about ten past the hour. We've not done that, 
and then you know by 20 past the hour I thought that's it the item's gone you know which it was and was it a big place this toothbrush museum (laughs) It was tiny. It was absolutely tiny. I seem to remember there was some kind of weird little mezzanine. Yeah, it was just weird, this place. And the guy running it was weird. But, you oh, know, really? And, yeah, I'm and so it was literally. And do you know what? It was snowing as well. And it, oh. apparently it doesn't snow hardly in, in Amsterdam. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, I hope I can. I just want to get back home you know, or get back to, you know, the office. I just don't want to be snowed in. The Amsterdam ship or airport you set these things up if they want to use it great if they don't that, that's what happens in live tv you do the best you can you you prep the item as well as you can or the interview and you know sometimes through no fault of anyone it just you know it falls away but yeah the toothbrush museum that's quite fun <laughs> <laughs> so so again you've got the guests lined up it's live tv yeah uh, evening was there ever occasion where a guest didn't turn up Oh, yeah. Uh, it would happen for whatever reason. We would lose guests, sometimes through no fault of their own. Other times, you know, they just couldn't be bothered. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it would happen. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, we'd, we'd lose guests. You sometimes had standby items ready to go in that in case that did happen. It would be a standby item that it was there for anybody who needed it. As I said, if you have good presenters who can deal with that stuff, then yeah. Paul O'Grady show, uh, which was a live tea time show on ITV. So I produced that for a while. At the and same time, was this? No, after? this was after. Oh my God, no! I mean, not the same time. That was that was uh, a few years after. That was quite a tough one to do because that not only involves celebrities but also members of the public. So, and live? Oh, absolutely live! Yeah. So what yeah. happens if the guest decides to swear or do something really? beyond the pale on TV. Yeah, I mean, that that really didn't happen very often. And everyone would be prepped. They would be reminded that it is live television. Um, But, of course, if they did swear or do something untowards, then, you know, we would either, A, apologise immediately or we would literally cut away. You know, um, when I say cut away, we'd move the camera or we'd uh, show something else. There was nothing that really went wrong that I can recall. Yeah, from from the sound of it, you're working with very professional people here. You oh, know, extremely, John, yeah. You know, Johnny Vaughan, yeah. Paul O'Grady as yeah. well. Yeah, Frank and- Skinner was another one. You know, it's all about doing your homework. It's all about being prepared for any eventuality because, you know, you just don't know how these things are going to go. I mean, the Frank Skinner show wasn't live. It was pre-recorded, but it was shot as live with a studio audience. Yeah. You know, but uh, yeah, certainly Paul O'Grady, you know, was a live show. But you know what? Sometimes when things did go a little bit wrong... If you cop to that, the audience would forgive you. And, you know, if yes. you if you were a professional like Paula Grady and, say, Johnny Vaughan and Denise, you could just laugh about that. You know, you would make something out of the fact, oh, well, that didn't quite go to plan. You know, yeah. Yeah. knowing look at audience, laughter. You know, you've kind of covered that. Yeah. It was fine if that did happen. It didn't happen often with the crew as well, you know, with the director in the gallery. You know, if it was going a little bit pear-shaped, then, you know, we'd cut away to a, an item about X, Y, Z. Toothbrushes in Amsterdam. Yeah. Toothbrushes in Amsterdam. Yeah, still, I don't know if it's still there or not. I don't know. We'll have to Google that. Well, yeah. We've got a lot of listeners in Amsterdam. I'm sure they'll have feedback to us. Yeah, let us know. Is he still there? <laughs> so... With the Johnny Vaughan show on BBC Three, did that, and you say that went out most evenings, mm. did you ever do a New Year's Eve, one of those? No. So any other so. holidays or anything like that that they did? Because sometimes you've got to tie in very specific things, like coming up to Christmas. Yeah, actually, uh, so with the big breakfast, over the Christmas periods, the week uh, between sort of Christmas and New Year, all of those shows were pre-recorded, so we could essentially shut the office. So that was quite fun if you got... They, they would put a dedicated team on the Christmas shows. In some respect, it was quite fun to do, but at the same time, it was also quite stressful. You know, you're trying to find Christmas trees September time, which these days you can easily get. But, yeah. So you would set up shows to record immediately after, you know, the show, the live show that you'd done. And this is the power of these shows. I remember one, must be about 95, 96 Independence Day came out, Will Smith had become a uh-huh. big star. Yeah. And Will Smith had done the Christmas Day show. Yes. And I was convinced it was live. Yeah, absolutely. So there yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Great show as well. I still yeah. Remember it. Wow. Okay. Again, you know, Will Smith, nice as pie. You know, I remember, um, you know, when he, he came to the studio, the, the, you know, no ego, you know, no 
you know, and again, he was up for anything. Will, do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? Yeah, brilliant. Whatever you want. You yeah. know, let's have some fun. Yeah, he, he seemed fun as well. Yeah, you know, and, and surprisingly, he'd seen the show, so he knew what he was getting. Okay. You know, often <laughs> you would get certain A-list celebrities. Oh, yeah, but of course they don't know what's what. They've never seen The Big Breakfast, and they would turn up, and there's all these gurning idiots stood around them, you know, uh, us, you know, the crew, you know, and, and you could see they were like, what have I just walked into? <laughs> you know, why is that guy dressed as a penguin? Yeah, it was, it was good. Different to the Will Smith of today, sadly. Mm. As I said, it convinced me I thought it was live. Good, yeah, no, we wanted to keep that live vibe. So when Johnny Vaughan's show on the BBC came to an end, mm. what, what did you do next after that? Uh, when we filmed Johnny Vaughan, uh, we did it at the BBC Television Centre. Yeah. And, you know, someone who'd loved TV. And, and and so working in that iconic building was amazing. Yeah. You know, every day you'd walk in and you were at what's called the donut. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, the big circular. Mm-hmm. You know, so seeing that, you know, uh, and walking around those corridors and, you know, they'd have pictures of, you know, Morecambe and Wise and, you know, just everyone you could possibly imagine, you know, and working in those studios was just astonishing. I loved it, loved it. I remember once, though, uh, walking through, there was like a, a warehouse full of props. It's like, you know, the last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah. where the guy's pushing yeah. the, uh, it was like that. Uh, and there was a TARDIS right in the middle of the, uh, <laughs> of the room. And it had the front and back doors open so you could see right through it. And I was heartbroken. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, no. it's the, hey, oh my God, it's the TARDIS beat. Oh, of course it's not the TARDIS. You can see right through <laughs> um, So it, it was amazing working at that place. I really, really enjoyed that. Sorry, as an aside. Anyway, so after I finished Johnny Vaughan, you know why the BBC Television Centre is circular? Do you know no. how that's... Do you no. not know that? No, no, I don't. Okay. When the architect, whose name escapes me, was commissioned to make... BBC Television Centre. Mm-hmm. He's in this meeting, and on the he had this envelope uh, in front of him, and he took his pen, and on that envelope, he wrote a question mark, and then he looked at that question mark, and he thought, "I'm going to make the building ah. from that shape." That's so if you right. look at BBC Television Centre from above, it looks like a question mark. Brilliant. Yeah. So okay. that's why it's circular yes. in the middle. Did so, not know that. There you go. So anyway, after I left Johnny Vaughan, I went to work on a show called Fame Academy. Now, this is the early sort of 2000s. So this is the rise of reality television. Yeah. You'd had Big Brother. Yeah. And those early series you know, were genuine, I think, social experiments. Yeah, almost, groundbreaking you know. for the time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they yeah. really were. You know, I, I, now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I remember while I was still at Big Breakfast, Channel 4 were doing a live feed of, you know, the Big Brother house in Series 1. And we'd all be gathered around the TV. And, of course, all the people in the house just sat around on beanbags. But we found it fascinating. <laughs> it yeah. was just like, oh, my God, what are they doing now? Oh, they've gone to the kitchen. This really was the kind of rise of reality television. I guess the BBC, obviously getting wind of this was the way it was going, wanted to do something similar, but they didn't want people just sat around. They wanted to give them something to do. So Fame Academy was young people who were then mentored to become uh, musical artists. So they were all boarded uh, in a massive house in Highgate in North London. Um, So that was where our production officers were as well. And over several weeks, the audience would vote one of those kids out until you eventually had a winner. Again, it was quite fun to do because, you know, unlike a very structured live TV show, you know, suddenly it's not 24-7. We didn't film them at night or anything like that, but their working day, you know, sort of 8am through to sort of 8pm, cameras were on the whole time. So to then construct a story out of everyone's day, there were different production crews for, for each of the people in there. So it's like, well, what's person a doing today person b and you know and then you'd construct that story um so that that was quite an interesting one to do i quite enjoyed that the big trick with that is not repeating itself as it goes through absolutely yeah yeah. you know and you're actually watching these kids uh, sort of learning songwriting and series one i did there was two series it wasn't commissioned after series two but i only did series one again as my part of my research before i came here i thought yeah let's have a look at uh, Fame Academy, and it was won by uh, a chap called David Snedden. I mean, he released a single, 
but he went on uh, to form a writing partnership with this other guy, you know, and he's written for Lana Del Rey, you know, he's okay. written for various pop stars now, you know, he, okay. he is an established songwriter. If, you, if you're a pop star and you need a song, you know, you mm. can employ this guy's company and he will write hit singles. It did work in that respect. Um, my abiding memory of that actually is uh, we did the live grand finale show uh, at Shepton Studios. And I'd never been at Shepton uh, Studios before. So, you know, and, you know, the history of cinema, yep. you know, for yeah, Shepton. Yeah, I thought, yeah. oh, that's, that's really exciting. So, so when we went there, you know, there's film lots and, you know, so there's stuff going on. And we thought, let's go and have a look. You know, we've got a bit of time, you know, got a bit of downtime for half an hour. And of course, there's big signs everywhere, you know, do not enter, you know, uh, staff only. And we were like, yeah, whatever, we're going in. The first place we went to, uh, we walked in and it was like we'd walked into the departure lounge of Heathrow Airport. I mean, talk about a shift. You know, if you've ever been in the departure lounge of a yeah, large yeah. international airport, what's weird is going from a sort of grotty outside a warehouse and then suddenly you're stood in it. It really was. It kind of like, whoa, what's this? This was for Love Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, right, so there's okay. a bit where there's an airport dash, isn't it? So yeah. they literally built this departure. You know, every shop clothing shops it was all there everything was there you know you never i had never seen anything like it the attention to detail of that set was pretty astonishing and as i said it was really weird uh, going from you know a back lot as in an alley to i'm now in an airport and then back out again you know that was that was really quite weird i'll never forget that that was the money that must have been spent on that set was phenomenal uh, and then the other one we went on to was like this alien landscape, uh, which all looked a bit weird. And we got we got found out then. We were told to piss off pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and that that was um, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy when they oh, made a film. Yeah. yeah, they were filming that there. So, yeah, that was apparently a, a very tight, closed set. We'd wandered around that. We'd had a look at that. Um, but, yeah, that that was quite fun, uh, poking around uh, Shefton Studios. Yeah, That's bizarre because Martin Freeman was in both those films. Yes. Love Actually and Hitchhiker's Guide. Oh, yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah no, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you stalking him? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? How many seasons did Fame Academy run for? Uh, it was two seasons, yeah. I only did season one. Um, um, but it was it was two seasons, definitely. Yeah, it was, it was a fun show. As I said, it was that time where, you know, reality TV wasn't in its infancy, but there was still... Uh, a lovely naivety about mm. it. And you've got to remember, this was like pre-social media as well. I mean, yeah. I, I am so pleased that all my career, uh, there was no Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, because people just pile in on everything. You know, oh, this is rubbish. We hate this. We hate you. Who did this? You know, there was none of that when we made TV. So that was quite nice. Yeah, because I'm sure whatever's made today, people are going to slag it off. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, you, you can't help but read that stuff. So I'm quite pleased that, you know, my entire career. The plus side is all your research should be done for you because everything's there. Yeah. But your downside is, yeah, uh, uh, certainly with something like Twitter and Instagram, it's straight yeah, out. Yeah, people would just be like, what, you know, what the hell was that? You know, this is all rubbish. Um, so, yeah, after Fame Academy, yeah, I was working in an edit suite and I bumped into a chap who was like, hey, do you want to come and do Frank Skinner? He was the serious producer who I knew. That's how you get all the best jobs. Because I was freelance, you know, <laughs> yeah. so you, you know, you're freelance. So he said, come and do Frank Skinner. Uh, so I did a series of that. And that was good fun because, again, Frank, absolute consummate professional, uh, really did his homework. You know, a lot of people would sometimes, you'd give them notes about the person they're going to interview live or whatever, and you knew they didn't read them. Frank would read every word and he'd have notes. And he'd be like, okay, so let's start here mentioned this is there any more to this or what do you mean by that you know so he read everything you know because he definitely wanted to not just do generic interviews he always wanted to go a little bit further and ask more interesting questions because if you can ask a celebrity a question they'd never been asked before then suddenly you know you could potentially have a much better interview so what he insisted on is everyone we had on the show uh, we would uh, as members of the crew go out and pre-interview that person we'd take oh, them out wow. for lunch really? you know we you know so uh, you know yeah. had lunch with people like patrick stewart simon callow uh, and jamie oliver yeah so the jamie oliver thing so that's that's a really good example that that frank would often use because uh, that was in a previous series so 
what happened was one of his researchers gave him notes on Jamie Oliver uh, and uh, by phoning Jamie Oliver or chatting, I think he phoned one of his relatives or something, uh, Jamie Oliver's, uh, when he lived at home, his bedroom door had loads of graffiti on it and like Jamie Oliver would write on it, I want to be a top chef or something. So Frank thought, let's get that door and bring it into the studio. <laughs> so which is what they did. So they revealed this door to Jamie Oliver, go, look, we've got your bedroom door. And Jamie Oliver was like, wow! And it, it made for great telly because he was instantly like, oh my God, this is a... So when that interview went, and this is when Jamie Oliver was like at his yeah. peak, you yeah. know, sort of a young, fresh chef. So after that show... That was a previous series. I mean, I hadn't worked on that. But yeah. after that show, Frank thought, right, that's the extra value that I want for all of my guests. Mm. So that bar had then been set. So we would then, uh, Ian McKellen, I took Ian McKellen out to lunch. That was amazing. That was the bar that was set. So he wanted pre-interviews with everyone who was going to turn up on that show just to see if we could get a little nugget, you know, oh, yeah. about your childhood or just a little something that we could talk about that would be fun that you wouldn't normally get that ask that kind of question on a normal show who ordered the most expensive lunch <laughs> uh can i say can i say um give us just don't give a name give a clue for somebody he uh oh it's he right don't, it's don't a it's a he right. uh i did a show uh, on bbc one it was a saturday night early evening entertainment show and the host of that show, he liked his fill um, before uh, the show. Yeah, so we had to make sure he was properly fed um, before that show. On the Johnny Vaughan show, we had Anthony Bourdain. Do you remember him? Oh, he yes. Was like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I took him out for dinner once. You know, after the show, you know, he was, um, he was staying nearby. So we went out for dinner. Uh, which is great, you know, taking out a top chef and critic to, you know, for dinner. Yeah. You know, as the producer, you know, I, I, I thought, okay, let's let's take him out. And yeah, the bill was quite high for that. But I thought, yeah, what the hell? You know, it's Anthony Bourdain. He's a legend. So yeah, that that was quite a big bill uh, that night. You know, he, he wanted wine. You know, big steak. Fair enough. You know, yeah. he wanted some nice wine to go with it. So yeah, yeah, uh, that that was quite an expensive bill. <laughs> but most people uh, were absolutely fine. David Bowie, when he came on the Big Breakfast, just wanted a cup of tea. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, they've been there, they've done that, they don't need, you yeah. know, it's your boy band idiots who turn up and they've they want got their this ego stroke. Of, yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah, because, you know, in fairness to them, under huge pressure, you know, they're, they're constantly scrutinised and for them, fame is a new thing. Mm. Oh, I can ask for it and I get it, brilliant, you know, yeah. but, you know, your old lags who'd been around the block a million times. So if you were organising a dinner party at home now, and let's say all of these guests and all these people you've taken out to lunch and met and so forth, mm. whether they're alive or dead, who do you think would be the most entertaining around that table? Two or three. You think, I'll have a great night listening to these people. Uh, Jack Black. Uh, he was uh, he was quite a raconteur. Yeah. Um, yeah. Enjoyed his company. Honestly, I would definitely take Johnny Vaughan. Yeah. Johnny Vaughan is one of the most astonishingly intelligent people I've ever met. You could talk to him about any subject and he would be genuinely knowledgeable about it. Absolute raconteur. So I would certainly get him along. Uh, Ian McKellen, he was great. Again, it, some of the stories that he was telling me, <laughs> I thought, this is all brilliant. We can't use any of this. <laughs> this is fantastic. So again, great raconteur. Matt Groening. The Simpsons creator. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, he was lovely. He was amazing. Uh, I remember meeting him. It was the 10th anniversary of The Simpsons. And they'd flown him and the entire cast over to the UK to do a series of interviews. So Harry Shearer, you know, everyone. You know, they were all... Uh, in the room together. He did a little special something for you, didn't he? A yeah, he did. Memento, I took yeah. a photo of it, actually, before I came. Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll show you. You know, of course, when you meet these big stars, rightly so, as part of the crew, you know, you are told, you know, do not ask for autographs. Yeah. And that is that is right and proper. Yeah. You know, and of course, this is, again, pre, you know, phones, can I have a selfie yeah. kind of thing. It's all, fortunately, it's all pre that. And that is absolutely right and proper. And we never did... But talking to Matt Groening, and you don't often get a lot of time with these people, you know, to be fair. But there was some, there was a setup going on. They wanted, um, they were doing something with the rest of the crew. So I, I was just literally sat there uh, with him, 
um, for a few minutes and, you know, we were chatting and, you know, he was, he was such a grounded down to earth guy. He's, he's essentially a fan, a geek, you know, he's like a movie and, you know, comic book fan who's like, I can't believe how this has just blown up. You know, I, I just, this crazy little thing. And so I thought, you know, we're chatting. I thought, you know what, I, I think it'd be fine to ask him. So I did say, look, do you mind, you know, if I get your autograph? So I, I had this picture of Homer Simpson and uh, I got him to sign it for me. Oh, and he wow. drew me a Bart Simpson on that as well, which is was pretty special. You know, that's like, you know, I think I said to you, it's like asking Walt Disney to draw, to draw Mickey, Mickey Mouse. Mouse. Yeah, so, you know, I've got that. Um, and that still hangs on my wall, so I'm really pleased uh, that I've got that. And isn't the Bart Simpson based on something? Correct, yes. So when you look at any of those characters, and I never knew this, Matt Groening was saying, you know, when you look at Bart Simpson or Homer Simpson, if you look at the way Homer Simpson's hair is, it's wavy like that. Yeah. And if you look at his ear, it's in the shape of a G. He says, that's just my initials. Matt. <laughs> Graining, and it's it's in every one of those characters, MG. So when you look at it, so I mean, I'll show you. Obviously, it's not yeah. going to be helpful to your your listeners, but uh, but yeah, if you well, look, can if we you put just it get on any, our website? Yeah, probably, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course you can. Yeah, of course you can. Yeah, to go with this. Yeah, I'll send you the picture. But uh, yeah, when you look at uh, Homer Simpson. Bart Simpson. I will you'll be see able M. to unsee that now. Yeah, you'll, be... never, you'll never unsee it. Yeah, and I thought, wow, that's so cool. I'd invite him because I'd like to know. Because I, I mean, I've watched Simpsons for years, um, but you know, back in the early days, that, that first ten years, that was a groundbreaking show. That was quite subversive. Great, fantastic show. That was cool meeting him. How long are you on the Frank Skinner show? Yeah. I just did one season of that. Yeah, you kind of flit around. It's this, it's that kind of thing where you know, being freelance. If the next season comes up, but if you're already doing something, if it, you know, yeah. if, it, if it clashes, then you know, obviously you can't do it. Only ended up ever doing one season. Yeah, from Frank Skinner, I then went to Paul O'Grady show. Yeah, I think I was doing that when the Frank Skinner got picked up again. I mean, you've had a good run of professional people here as well. Yeah, well, the Big Breakfast and the people who worked on that, uh, we all kind of stayed in the industry it was a, a big group of people um, but we all knew each other well and we worked on the whole you know we worked yeah. together well and so certainly when you moved on there was that connection you know it really was oh oh you work with so-and-so oh you know so-and-so mm. oh you know we're doing this we're saying up this do you want to come and do this so you know like any industry I suppose it's a clique yeah you know Paul O'Grady was the only show where I didn't know anyone on that crew favorite moments on the Paul O'Grady show Lauren Bacall was on the show. Uh, she had a biography. We heard that she was quite prickly. You know, she was quite prickly. You know, but you know what? Fair play to her. Being a, a female in Hollywood in the 40s and 50s, you've got to be a tough cookie. And she started very young. Didn't she just? So yeah. I totally get that. I totally get that. I had no issue with that whatsoever. And she was, I mean, God, well into her 90s. You know, when she oh, came yeah, on the show, yeah. I believe. I mean, mm. um, she didn't want to speak to anyone except Paul himself, the series producer, and the producer, who on the day she was coming on was me. So suddenly I ended up having to be the runner. Oh, Miss um, McCourt, what would you like? Uh, you know, anything? Cup of tea? Know, yeah. Um, <laughs> I can't remember what she even asked for. Something weird. So I'm suddenly running around trying to find, you know, Somebody get me this. It's like, why are you asking for that? Like, just do it. Nobody wants. Nobody's allowed to talk to Laura McCall. She was cool. I mean, uh, and the stories. It's amazing when you're talking to someone who is talking about Humphrey Bogart. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, wow, that that connection to absolute Hollywood A-list golden era. You know, that's not removed. That's you. Yeah. You know. And Paul um, O'Grady must have loved her. Oh, God, he loved her. He totally loved her. And he charmed her. He, he knew oh, yeah. she was going to be hard work, and he absolutely charmed her, as he does. You know, he, he is someone who is very good at putting people at ease, and that was quite something. You know, it's the golden era. Hollywood royalty um, was pretty cool. Well, <laughs> so where do you go to Paul O'Grady? Okay, so now we're coming to why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> You get to a point, so we're now about 2006, I'm 36 years old, and doing the kind of shows that I do, 
does begin to take <laughs> its toll. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, and as much as I enjoy them, and as I said, as soon as the, you know, the theme tune starts, the crowd are going crazy, the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, and, you know, all the chaos, all the madness, all the craziness, the stress, it's all worth it to see and feel an audience enjoy a performance that you've helped create. You know, that is, that's the buzz. But it is incredibly hard, you know, and it takes over your life. You know, it's not nine to five. No. You know, it is sometimes seven days a week. You know, I missed family occasions, friends' weddings. And I, and I can't even remember why. But, mm. you know, you're in that kind of, nope, my, the work is so important. Um, and uh, myself and my then girlfriend, now wife, and we met on The Big Breakfast. Oh, right. So yeah. a big yeah. shout to Jess, my lovely wife. We kind of wanted to redress that work-life balance a little bit more. So she's got family out here. Her mother lives in Selsley. So we used to come up for weekends. And uh, we thought eventually, you know what? You know, let's let's do it. Let's try country living. I took a bit of convincing. Uh, someone who's very much, you know, enjoyed uh, sort of London city life. Um, but now I wouldn't swap it for the world. You know, I, 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 you know so I've lived here ever since. So when we moved, I was doing two or three days a week in London for a production company. And I was a development producer. So what this is, obviously, we turn on our TV and there are shows on TV. Yeah. You know, but of course, there are steps to get that show on mm. television. It doesn't just happen. Yeah. It's all about coming up with ideas and attaching talent to that show, the format. You then pitch to commissioners, TV channels, you know, and then you hope that they'll give you money to make pilots. So it's all of that. You know, and for every TV show you see on television, there are a hundred that never get to air. You know, it is a phenomenal effort to get shows on television. Um, so I did a little bit of work for a company uh, in London for two or three days a week. So I was commuting backwards and forwards, you know, uh, uh, from here into London. But then uh, a friend of mine, uh, a colleague who I'd worked with a few times in London, had relocated to the West Country and he was working at BBC Bristol. Um, so I phoned him up and I uh, said, you know, oh, I hear you're at the BBC Bristol. And he's like, yeah, where are you? I'm like, I'm just near Stroud. He's like, oh my God, get in here. <laughs> come, come now, please. Uh, so I started working, uh, developing entertainment formats um, at the BBC in Bristol. And anything you developed did that make it to it? Yeah, I did. Um, I, <laughs> I messed around with a sacred cow, uh, the antiques roadshow that's made in BBC Bristol. Um, oh. So yeah, I came up because they wanted to like because there's all this archive footage, just astonishing archive footage. They wanted to, you know, we gave them all these new ideas, but actually, it's like now how can we repackage all this old stuff? So I gave them a format with new links, you know, new presenter links. It was like, well, this episode's all about ceramics. This episode's about toys. You know, here's a toy expert looking back on previous shows, the best finds, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so they really went for that. So there was a couple of seasons of that. Yeah, no, I did a few pilots. I did, they really wanted, BBC Bristol really wanted to crack BBC Three, you know, the youth channel. So I did a pilot called uh, Love Bites, uh, which is where people dated virtually uh, so they'd create avatars before they would meet in real life, which is pretty good. And I employed Caroline Flack. I don't know if you remember okay. Caroline Flack. Um, yeah. She'd worked, she'd done a bit of TV, but she was not the big star, you know, that she became. We got a few little bits and pieces away. Yeah, I ended up working uh, a little bit on Antiques Roadshow. Yeah, which was... Uh, These in the days before Fiona Bruce. No, she just started. That was the first series she did, yeah. Because I, all I remember is uh, the first time I did... <laughs> I mean, it's like Glastonbury with pensioners. I mean, it, it, it's... Really, <laughs> it, and you've never seen so many... I, I can uh, still laugh. To yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, we're, all, we're all getting a bit... You know, um, but you, you've never seen so many hopes and dreams dashed. Uh, oh, I love it. That's, that's, so, that's the only reason I watch it. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, but, yeah, but you see the people on, on, uh, on TV. The way it works is... Of course, you rock up with your antique and you are ushered into a big marquee uh, and there are a big row of experts who will literally go, no, and next. You know, it, it's as quick as that. And, wow. and people are absolutely crestfallen. 
you know, uh, it, for everyone you see on TV, there are hundreds who will turn up on that day who don't get near uh, the cameras. But yeah, if and it's so quick, you know, bless them, they're handing over family heirlooms and the guy will be like, nah, not worth it. See, my, my favourite is when they look at it and say, this would be worth three million, but you've cracked it there and it's worth like 20p yeah. now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. 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 Oh, you're um, sick, Jack. Yeah. Really? And to be fair to them, you know, it wasn't always about value. It was about, is there a story that yes. we can tell? That's what it is. The value, you know, we all love that bit, but yeah. really, what's the story? Yeah. You know, uh, and the amount of grandfather clocks uh, that would come rolling in and it's just like, ugh, again. But you'd always get them. You'd always get amazing... There would always be uh, astonishing things that would turn up every week. So people must rock up in vans full of yeah, stuff. Yeah, literally, literally. If, it, if it's big furniture or big stuff, then they will send out an expert to the house. They don't want people turning up oh, with, with you know, armoires or God knows what else. <laughs> Certainly if it's big, they would send out somebody to go and assess. Yeah, 95% of the stuff people turn up with is rubbish but it's always the five percent would be astonishing and you'd make a great show out of it yeah so but the love for that show is 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 wonderful you know the the people really love it it's a great day out you know it really is for a lot of people a great day out but it's it's quite funny herding people into shot you know you'd literally try and pack them around the back of the experts you know just to kind of make that shot work early in the day it'd be heaving but you know late in the day people are you know, gone by about four o'clock. So you'd be grabbing people, going, right, stand here, stand there. Do people get irate on it as well because they think, you know, sorry, it's not worth anything? They just get, yes, it is. Not on camera because if you're on camera, oh, right, then yeah. you're being told yeah. something interesting about that item. Yeah. Um, but definitely, when you first, if you've brought a something to be valued, yeah, you know, because, the, you know, the queue is a mile long you know you haven't got time to be nice to people yeah. you know you're not being rude but it's no. like no i'm really sorry that's not something you know we're interested in occasionally you would get someone well this was blah 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 blah, blah. but we've already done 10 clarence cliff teapots you know we can't do another one but you know most people were just sort of a little bit crestfallen and <laughs> there you go the exit's over there yeah no they're the ones i love i i no, i love it when the people come with something and they didn't think it's worth much mm. there was a guy who turned up with two watches once yeah totally I, that's that's the telly gold yeah and then yeah. the guy went yeah oh do you realize what you've got here yeah and he's like no i don't yeah and he went this is incredibly valuable in fact this is the only one of these i've ever seen yeah and the look on the guy's face. Yeah. Was just yeah, you would never you would never say to the person off camera mm. what that was worth. Yeah. You would always say Try and get the reaction that's really shot. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We'd like to talk about that, if that's okay. Never tell them the actual worth because you know the, you the T V gold moment yeah. is the reaction. Yeah. yeah. That's what you want. So how long were you at BBC Bristol? Uh, a couple of years. And then um, you know, I was offered you know, things like bargain hunt, and I just don't, you know, it's just, it's just not me. Yeah. Uh, so I thought, you know what, let's do something different. I'd worked at BBC Bristol for a while, and my wife, who was also obviously in television, she worked on, you know, things like Big Brother. Uh, she did the early uh, series two for that, eight out of ten cats. Uh, she worked on that. You know, would I lie to you? Uh, she oh, developed wow. that show, um, so she helped develop that show. But she she wanted to do something a bit different as well. The Noel Edmonds show, when we moved to Bristol, she did Deal or No Deal. Yeah, Working um, with Noel Edmonds, yeah. there's, there's a medal in itself. Yeah, yeah. she wanted uh, to do something different, and she you know successfully did that. And I thought, no, you know what? Yeah, I've always had a passion for wine, and I thought, no, it'd be fun. to let's let's If I'm going to change career, let's do it now. Yeah, I've loved it ever since. Again, you know, you just part of the fun of wine is you know you meet interesting people, you go yeah. to interesting places, and you know you'd never know what opportunities it offers well, you. Yeah, you know, exactly. So you know, it's uh, you know, it was it was a real shift, but and and I love it. I say it's all about that work life balance. You know, I work very hard and I enjoy working, but at the same time, you know, I've got much more free time and. When we get to our age, what do we want? We, we want time, don't we? You know exactly. Yeah. Talking about wines and where you are now, what are some of your favourite wines, and what would you recommend to people? Uh, sort of mid-range, some of our sort of uh, 
poorer listeners like Graham. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. Uh, some of my favourite wines, Jeff. Unfortunately, I'm a wine whore. You know, there's, there's very, <laughs> there are very little wine. There's very little wine that I don't <laughs> like. But you know, particular favourite uh, Spanish wine. Uh, I really enjoy good Spanish wine. Uh, Riojas, obviously, um, but there are many, many other areas of Spain um, who make fantastic wines. You know, lighter Italian reds. I do like light Italian okay. reds. Yeah, no, there there are some great, great wines to be had for very reasonable prices. Come and ask us at Stroud Wine. Come on, come and talk to us. Well, we will <laughs> certainly yeah. come down. Uh, there's there's one I'm really enjoying at the moment. It's called the Clear. Uh, which is from uh, Ribera del Duero, which is a region right next to uh, Rioja. It's about 15 quid, and it absolutely punches well above its weight. It's, yeah. a, it's a wonderful wine. But you know what? You know, it's not To me, it's, um, it's not about price. It's about who you're enjoying the wine with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been very lucky in this career. I've tasted some of the finest wines in the world that are hundreds of pounds per bottle, but... Did I enjoy that wine more than the ten-pound bottle of wine I had with the wife in front of the fire at home? You know, which one am I enjoying more? It's who you're with and and where you are. Yeah, um, yeah. I could not agree more. Yeah. I always say uh, wine is ninety percent social activity. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, it know, is. It's, it's you know, that's what it is. is. If you sat watch, in my case, watching a film with my wife and we're yeah. having a really good wine. Yeah, that's that's the film that's the gets experience. better. Yeah, and I'm thinking this director knows what he's doing. Yeah, or is that just me getting drunk? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is a social thing. Yeah. You know, I had the most amazing Rioja when I was in the Rioja region, you know, overlooking vineyards. It was a perfect sunset. We had some great tapas with it, you know, and and that is a bottle of wine that I could buy in the UK. But actually, you know what? I won't because that was the experience then. Yes. And yes, it's, it's a beautiful wine, but enjoy it for what it is in that moment so clashing the two careers mm. you ever met any of these wine experts like ollie smith and oz clark any of those people yeah uh, absolutely oz clark i um so i am a judge for the iwc uh, which What's is IWC, sorry? international wine challenge okay. uh so when you go into a supermarket and you see a gold silver or bronze mm. label sticker on that bottle that says iwc I'm part of the judging panel um, who does that. Uh, I'm doing it next month, actually. Uh, so they do it twice a year. Uh, and Oz Clark is the head judge, uh, essentially. It's good fun. So you go to uh, the Oval Cricket Grounds uh, in wow. London. Uh, and it's one of their big sort of conference rooms. And there is about 50, 60 tables, uh, about the size of the table that we're sat around uh, now you are split into teams of five or six so often you've got a head judge uh, with you uh, who is uh, often a master of wine Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you have uh, a couple of judges of which I'm one and then you've got a couple of associate judges so you will blind taste a selection of wines Um, so it could be a table of Argentinian Malbecs or it could be champagne it could be you know, whatever. Uh, so you'll blind taste and then you will judge whether you think that wine mm. is bronze, silver or gold. And then if you choose, if you say that wine should get a gold medal, uh, that wine will then go to the top table of head head judges, of which Oz Clark is one of those. Okay. Yeah, so he will then retaste that wine. Either say, yes, I agree with you, that deserves gold, or have another look at that. Did you know he used to be an actor? Yeah, he was in Superman. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He came into the shop last year. Okay. It was the uh, Stroud Food and Drink Festival. Yeah. It was honestly one of the busiest days in that shop we've ever had. Stroud was absolutely packed. We were running a natural wine pop-up bar in the tasting room next door to the shop. We were at our busiest moment. It was like sardines in the shop. And then Oz Clark turns up with a Stroud News and Journal reporter saying, can we get some photos with you? (laughs) So we were so busy, we couldn't even get any photos with it because we just didn't have time. It was crazy, absolutely crazy. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, he was an actor, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. 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 Was it Superman two? Was he in no, the one? No, in the first, was it the first one. Okay, he was yeah. uh, one of the two criminals on the boat. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. 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 
funny. No, we just done a piece on Superman, so I, oh, have I you? Know okay, from there. Yeah. yeah, wow, um, yeah, okay, but yeah, have you met Ollie Smith in passing? Yeah, in a group chat uh, at an industry tasting somewhere in london yeah. but so yes yeah i met him yeah. once yeah. at the cheltenham literature festival ah okay and yeah. it was really funny because he was on the same time that ian botham was running an event okay and not that many people turned up for him, maybe a hundred or so yeah. Yeah. yeah but he was so appreciative of everybody that was in there he told some great stories one of which i will tell you off camera which i can't yeah. say <laughs> um and Afterwards, he said, right, I'm really grateful. Anybody who wants the book signed, yeah. uh, then come and see me and we'll sign it. And, you know, when you're queuing up, I'll have something for you. And sure enough, he went back to the refreshments tent, took some bottles of wine and was pouring us glasses of wine as we were in the queue. Bless him. Nice chap. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know, if you work know in your wine. Audience. <laughs> yeah, know your audience. Absolutely. Yeah, no, if you work in wine, you just want to spread the love. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. I feel very fortunate with the career I had it isn't something I would ever want to do again you know I love what I do now I love my life now Um, but I'm really pleased that I did it I said I met some astonishing people I've been to places that normally most people wouldn't get to go to or or experience do things you know that most people wouldn't get to experience I had a lot of fun uh, doing it and it was great but wine's my thing now (laughs) well thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing with us it's been a very entertaining chat and uh, I look forward to seeing you at the next Stroud Wine event thank you very much thank you very much a pleasure thank you gentlemen thank you